Did you ever feel like what you learned in law school didn't prepare you for the world of running a law practice? Law school didn't teach us how to start our practices the right way so that we could scale them into a thriving business. We didn't learn how to make sure that our businesses would meet our financial goals and provide the type of lifestyle we deserve. After 10 years, I was fed up with struggling in my practice and decided to begin a journey to scaling a successful practice that would actually allow me to finally live the life I've always dreamed of. I invite you to listen in on the conversations I'm having with some of the most successful solo and small firm practitioners, along with leading business entrepreneurs, and share how I am implementing what I am learning, all with the goal of helping you take control of your practice and your life. This is The Law Entrepreneur. Hey there, fellow law entrepreneurs. Welcome to episode nine of The Law Entrepreneur. My name is Neil Tyra, and today we'll be talking with Valerie Nowatnik. Valerie is the owner of Paralegal Consultants, which provides contract paralegal support services to law firms in Maryland and beyond. These services include litigation support as well as office management support and can be provided on-site or via virtual assistant setup. Valerie will be discussing the benefits of contracting out your paralegal deeds, the cost efficiencies of doing so, the types of tasks best suited to be satisfied by such legal support, and how these services are to be billed to the law firm and in turn to the client. She brings over 30 years of legal support service experience to the interview, along with the entrepreneurial knowledge of starting her own business, and shares all of that with us today. So let's get to it, and here's Valerie Nowatnik. Valerie Nowatnik, welcome to The Law Entrepreneur. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for taking the time to be here. Valerie, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how paralegal consultants came to be. Well, uh, thank you. Pleased to introduce myself. I am a career paralegal. I've been in the legal field for over 30 years. I started Paralegal Consultants back in 2008 as a means to provide litigation support services to uh, attorneys, initially starting in just Maryland. It has now since branched nationwide. And the types of services that we provide have also evolved over the years. It began starting with providing legal memorandums and doing basic research. It now encompasses law office management as well as uh, financial management, where we actually manage financial accounts and so forth for attorneys, escrow transactions, PI settlements, that kind of thing. And hopefully in the very near future, I'm upgrading my equipment that we're going to be able to start assisting solos and small firms with converting their practices to paperless practices, because that's what we advocate is being able to convert people to going paperless. All right. Now, so it's interesting because while we're talking about legal support and litigation support services uh, that you offer, you're very much an entrepreneur yourself, having started this business from scratch. You were providing paralegal services to other attorneys before you started your business? I did, actually. I worked full-time for a variety of firms, and that's where I learned my vast knowledge of the different fields of law, uh, including personal injury, workers' comp, civil, etc. 
So I had a great deal of experience under my belt before I decided to branch out on my own and started doing this for myself. In fact, one of my last employers who I worked for full time encouraged me to start this business because he felt that, in his words, my talent was being wasted working with him. (laughs) He was an older gentleman, definitely was on his way to retirement, didn't think he was going to be taking on very more challenging cases. And he didn't want me to sit there and go to waste. So he said, you know, maybe you should start thinking about doing this on the side for people and and basically tra- having something to transition to once he decided to go into retirement. And I'm eternally grateful that I took his advice because that's literally what happened. I started taking on clients while I was still working for him full time. And when he decided to go into retirement three years ago, then I literally converted to this business full time and it has been supporting me ever since. And now my employees. (laughs) Now, as a business entrepreneur, what challenges did you face in the beginning? Well, there's a unique challenge with regard to this business. And that is, is I cannot advertise. I've been told by several people, both in the legal field and otherwise that I could offer services to the general public on a procedural basis to simply explain to people how they can navigate the system, the judicial system. I've chosen not to do that. I've made a hard and fast rule from day one because I never wanted to cross the line or give anyone the impression that I was practicing law without a license. So my Sole means of advertising has been through the various listservs, both in the Bar Association and with David Goldberg's group. And that's where I have gotten my clients. That and word of mouth. I actually get a healthy amount of referrals just from my other clients who have referred colleagues to me. So let's talk a little bit about the restriction on advertising. What What's the basis for that restriction? Well, it's somewhat self-imposed. I mean, I work in the legal field. I know what the worst case scenario can be. Okay. You know, you you give someone the wrong advice or you point someone in the wrong direction and suddenly you're subject to liability. So just as a precautionary measure, I just opted not to advertise at all. Stay away from that third rail, so to speak. Exactly. Because in my opinion, it's not worth it. I believe, and I've been told by attorneys and legal professionals that my reputation in the community is very good, and I want to keep it that way. Sure. And the last thing I want to do is, you know, bring any ill uh, repute upon my reputation. I've worked too hard to get it, so I definitely want to maintain it. Well, the issue of advertising is one that uh, attorneys face all the time, because as I'm sure you know, being in the business for 30 years, that for a long period of time— attorneys were restricted completely from advertising and now there are there are certain hurdles that they have to get over in order to be able to to advertise their businesses and this has been a, it's a it's a tough challenge for attorneys because clearly your law firm is a business just the same way your paralegal consulting firm is a business so if you restrict the owners of those businesses from their ability to advertise your actually having them enter the marketplace with one arm tied behind their back. But you've That's seemed right. you've seemed to overcome that pretty well through through networking and, and 
word of mouth advertising. What kind of um, what kind of folks? What kind of law firms take advantages of the services you offer? My primary audience is solos, but I do have some small firms now who have come on board, and the majority of those firms are using us for management of their discovery practices. I have found in the last six months that discovery has become a very burdensome and unwanted uh, aspect of a lot of law firms, unfortunately. And they are literally farming it out or, or contracting it out to me. I get the incoming discovery. I, on occasion, I contact the clients to get answers. I draft the responsive discovery. I do deficiency letters. I, I literally manage the entire discovery process for firms and some solos. Why, why do you think the explosive growth in, dis, in the area of discovery, why are attorneys not handling it that in-house or themselves? I think it's a combination of factors. I think the litigation process these days legislatively has changed dramatically from, shall we say, back in the day. It's become more cumbersome on everyone, plaintiffs, defendants, and, and counsel alike. In addition to that, I personally have seen a change in what has come out in discovery. The majority of the types of cases we handle here are family law. That used to be, you know, a set of requests for production of documents was maybe, I don't know, 35 requests maybe. You could pretty much get what you wanted in those 35 requests, I'm seeing RPDs, pardon the acronym, come through today where they're asking for 150 documents. That's crazy to me. Yeah, It's insane. And the amount of time that it requires for counsel and maybe their support staff to respond to that, not just because you have to recreate the document to respond to it, but then also to go with the client, explain to them what they need to do, what they don't have to do, and so forth, is time-consuming. Nobody has time for it anymore. Yeah, well, let me jump on my soapbox there. As a family law attorney, I have seen the same exact thing. And I, frankly, and this is my opinion, I think it's laziness on the yeah. part of the attorneys. Uh, I have seen requests for production of documents uh, that are copy and pasted, attorneys get them from other attorneys, copy and paste the exact same set, and you'll have 150 requests, and they're all repetitive. They're asking for the same thing over and over again in six yes. different requests for production documents. And I, you know, I have on occasion gone to court and, and sought relief. But the courts don't really want to get involved in discovery disputes like that. And, you know, some attorneys are willing to to mitigate the issue a little bit, but uh, it is a problem. And then I guess if I had a lot of cases where these cumbersome sets of discovery requests come in, I might be inclined to say, you know what, let me turn it over to Valerie and her folks and let them manage this process. So it's burdensome, I think, from the legal perspective. It's good for you in terms of the business perspective, but it's really time that could be spent doing things that are more productive. I agree. All right, so I'll, I'll, get result, off my, I'll get off my soapbox there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I agree with you completely, but you're absolutely right. It's been a boom for my business. 
I've been stunned really at the number of clients that have come through my doors recently, or I should say through my inbox, asking me to take over that aspect of their practice for them. And and we're more than happy to do it. Thankfully, because we have encountered numerous examples of the types of discovery, we have actually gotten the process down pretty efficiently. So while it may be overwhelming to the attorney to try and process something like that in-house, our methods are such that we can still get it done pretty efficiently. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's an economy of scale that you realize through your practice of doing this over and over again that leads to a level of efficiency that, in fact, makes it more uh, um, economical for that part of the litigation process to be outsourced. Absolutely. What other types of of work are you seeing? Well, we have some personal injury attorneys that we're assisting, not with the litigation necessarily, but more, again, because of the voluminous nature, is getting medical records, documenting the, re- the records, keeping track of what we've received, what we haven't, following up with doctor's offices, that kind of thing, basically putting the case in a posture for settlement. Sometimes we assist with the litigation if they have to file suit. Again, that discovery element comes into play. Sure. But normally our uh, services are confined to the front end, pre-litigation phase versus post. We also do a fair amount of collections. We do pre and post-judgment. Post-judgment is also done in partnership with Susan Boone with DeNovo Attorney Services. I'm not sure if you saw our announcement that I partnered up with her to use her company for private process services, doing the skip trace, you know, asset check, that kind of thing. Sure. She's been a tremendous resource and has has been very helpful to a lot of my clients in in tracking down um, defendants and whatnot. Now, I, I believe I also understand that you do some legal research on occasion. Oh, I yes, we do a lot of legal research. And actually, I even do appellate level work. I'm going to pat myself on the back here for a minute, but I've had uh, a couple briefs that were submitted and the decision was affirmed. So I'm very proud of that achievement. Excellent. Now, you've said that initially your services were being offered solely in the state of Maryland. How have you branched out beyond that? In the surrounding tri-state area, Virginia and Delaware, I've picked up a couple clients, not many, but a couple, in part due to my exhibition at the Solo and Small Firm Conference that um, the State Bar had in November up at BWI, which was a great conference. But also because I'm a member of the Solo Says, which is S-O-L-O-S-E-Z, listserv slash group through the American Bar Association. That's a free group, and they actually promote the membership of non-attorneys, although you have to disclose that in your signature block. But as you can imagine, it is an incredibly active group. And through my contacts there, I have actually picked up clients in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Buford, Georgia, and Utah, and the state of New York. Yep. So, I mean, it given that you're not practicing law and you have services that are common to all law firms, it would seem to me that uh, it, it's... It makes sense for you from an entrepreneurial standpoint to be looking to expand your footprint and 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 grow your firm. Absolutely. And that's really my goal for 2016. I'm very happy with the steps I've made thus far in 
basically getting myself out beyond the confines of Maryland. But I plan to expand on that. And I hope to increase my exposure in the surrounding areas in the near future. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that now you are also managing employees. Where where are you getting your staffing from and what kind of staffing needs uh, are you experiencing? I have two full-time staff people and I have a part-time admin person. And I'm getting them by advertising on social media primarily. Thankfully, through my network on Facebook, I was able to get my my last assistant and she comes locally. But the really nice thing about what I do, because 95% of the work that we do here is done in a remote environment, my staff people can actually work remotely as well. All of my clients' information and all of my information is in the cloud. So regardless of where we are at any given time, I can access my entire practice, my entire client base, and work from any location. Now, are you using some a portal or what other type of what type of platform are you hosting your practice on in the in the cloud? Uh, about six months ago, I signed up with Office three sixty five. I converted most of my clients over there. Some of my clients still prefer to use Dropbox, so I still have access to that as well. But for the most part, all of my clients are up in OneDrive, which is the storage portal for Office 365. And it's turned out to be very helpful uh, on both sides. Some people weren't aware of the OneDrive feature, being able to do the cloud storage. And they don't, if they're just accessing it through me, they don't have to pay for it, which is great. (laughs) So they get the benefit of being able to store their, their client documents and whatnot, you know, up in the cloud. And it's as accessible for them as it is for me so that they can also work remotely if necessary. And I know some people have issues with the cloud. I'm I'm not one of them in terms of security, in my sense, and using Dropbox and other platforms such as OneDrive is that there's sufficient uh, security built into these platforms uh, to meet our legal needs. I'm wondering what your viewpoint is on that. I'm very confident with OneDrive. There's sufficient security requirements on OneDrive that I've seen both on the back end as well as when you initially sign up for it. That puts my mind at ease as far as the information being protected. I've heard varying opinions with regard to the other uh, options, which is the first and foremost, of course, being Dropbox. The thing with Dropbox is when you sign up for the free account, you're getting something for free. And so you're not going to have the same security protocols that you would if you were in the paid subscription environment, which you know costs $9.99 a month. Some people are not up for paying $9.99 a month, and I get it. But at the same time, there could be a potential compromise of your client's information. So weighing that against, you know, your client's folder being hacked or exposure in some way of your client's confidential information, I think it's probably worth the subscription rate. As far as the other products, I'm not entirely familiar with them, so I don't wanna I don't wanna speak unintelligently, but those are the two, the OneDrive and Dropbox are the two primaries that I use. Well, certainly in, in Dropbox case, you get what you pay for or 
conversely, don't pay for. So I think you're right there. If you're going to be storing client files and sensitive information in Dropbox, it's incumbent upon you to, to pay the extra money to have the, the security that uh, that data is protected. Right. And if I could share something maybe sure. somewhat related, it still happens today. And I've been saying this now, I think, for five years or more. When I see the spam emails come across the listservs and I see people using an AOL address or a Yahoo address or Gmail, not so much. Gmail, I think, is pretty pretty good about keeping the hackers out. But, you know, it, it gives me pause. And I've gone out on the listservs frequently and said, gosh, you know, it costs, even if you had to go with somebody like GoDaddy, who I do not particularly care for, but nevertheless, it costs less than $5 a month to get a domain name. To use a, you know, Valerie at Paralegal Consult or Neil at TyraLaw.com address not only gives you a professional appearance with your clients, but also adds on that extra layer of security that if your email address is hacked and then spammed out with the latest Viagra offering, it doesn't go to your clients. <laughs> yeah, it astounds me as well because attorneys are, are missing the opportunity to help brand their firm by not having their own domain name. Exactly. It's just it's it's mind-boggling and and the number of attorneys who who have, you know, Hotmail accounts and Yahoo accounts and AOL accounts um, is really staggering uh, given the problems that those platforms have had with security and with with spamming. So again, yes. you get what you pay for or what you don't pay for. Right. So Valerie, tell me how how would an attorney bill out your for your services? Well, Neil, it's really uh, kind of case-specific, actually. It depends on how an attorney treats their personal injury cases. For example, if they have verbiage in their retainer agreement that says you that it's a contingency case up to the point of litigation, and then after, if litigation commences, it converts to hourly, then the same rule applies in terms of being able to bill the client for my time, either at an increased rate or, or my billable rate. If your retainer agreement covers a case even after it goes to litigation, a lot of attorneys now are actually tracking the amount of time, literally from the time of intake through litigation, to gauge their profit margin on whether the personal injury field is even profitable for them. So again, from the minute the client comes in the door, they treat it like an hourly case, despite the fact it's contingency. And then at the end of the case, they look at the amount of hours vested to see if, you know, if their verdict and they got $10,000 on the case, if they expended $8,000 in traditional fees, you know, maybe their margin is not so, not so great. In that same vein, if you're billing whatever your prevailing rate is for doing letters, if it's $250 an hour and I'm billing our rate for doing what's considered admin work, there's going to be a disparate difference, which obviously is going to increase your profit margin on your end. Well, certainly that's a, a, a real strong piece of data for the attorney to have to determine what's the best way to service the client and provide those that representation. And of course, in a family law case, I think where it's typically hourly, then it's just a pass through to the client. Precisely. Again, it depends on what the client can bear. And of course, you as the attorney know that better. There's attorneys who 
will just simply rebill our time onto their invoices. And, and for that reason, I send out our monthly invoices a couple days before the end of the month. So it gives the, the attorney the opportunity to take our time and rebill it onto their first of the month invoices. And they sometimes will bill it out at what we charge. And sometimes if their client can pay more, then they'll, I've seen attorneys bill us out at twice what I charge. Well, I think you certainly could make a case that, that the attorney could add on a certain premium for to cover the administrative cost of interfacing with the paralegal and in doing that work. So I, I can see that justification. And then I guess in a fixed fee case, how would that work in a fixed fee case? It would just I operate the same way as the attorney. If it's a fixed fee and we've already established a budget, what I call a budget at the beginning of the project, which is you know a legal research memo and it's going to cost 350, that attorney may charge the client. 500 or whatever, again, you know, whatever the client can bear. But my cost is established at the beginning of the project so the attorney knows what to expect. Great. From your perspective, I want to kind of move now a little bit your perspective uh, into solo practitioners and their challenges. Why don't, in your opinion, more attorneys outsource work? Why do they, a common habit is for them to, to do everything themselves. And that limits their ability to pay attention to growing their firm. So what do you think from your perspective is the cause of that, the reason why they keep it all in-house? Well, I think it's twofold. I think you have the newer attorneys just out of law school are extremely enthusiastic, want to hang out a shingle right away, and they think that they're Superman. And They do not adequately, because let's face it, they don't teach you this in law school. They don't teach you how to manage an office. They don't teach you how to work with staff. They don't show you that if you try to manage your own finances, draft discovery, meet with clients, and attend trials, you won't be able to do that. (laughs) There's only so many hours in a day. And so they eventually come to that conclusion after several months of basically not being, you know, no having no life and not being able to sleep. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where older attorneys, and I'm not giving a range, but older attorneys don't necessarily embrace technology as quickly as we'll say the middle range attorneys do. So they're a little more resistant. They're more seeing as believing. And I have often actually offered services pro bono (laughs) to attorneys to say, look, this will work, let me show you. And once I show them and they see it in action, they're, they're enlightened. Wow, I had no idea you could do that. And then they're they're sold. So I think it's, you know, I, there's some challenges. People of, of, you know, the old school who are very protective over the confidentiality of the of the client's documents and so forth, they're a little less interested in going online, thinking that there's going to be some vulnerabilities there. And the younger attorneys, I think, haven't quite grasped that. You need to delegate and your time is better spent doing substantive work versus 
typing a, a letter to opposing counsel, you know, where's your discovery kind of thing? Well, I'll just speak from my from my own experience because I have been uh, one of those attorneys who did everything themselves, typed my own letters and did my own discovery and scanned my own medical documents and, and all of those things. And I had a a mentor one time, Mark Miranda from Smart Marketing, I've mentioned his name yeah, many times on this podcast already, who said to me, what are you willing to pay somebody to do that? And I said, well, if I were to hire somebody to do that, I don't know, let's say I'd be willing to pay them, and I'm hemming and hawing, and he said, well, what's your rate? Well, I tell him my rate. He said, would you be willing to pay them your rate? I said, well, of course not. <laughs> Of course not. And he said, well, then why are you doing it? Right. <laughs> and it was one of those conversations where I literally you know, smacked myself in the head. And I said, well, I kind of thought I was being efficient. But in point of fact, I'm being just the opposite, aren't I? I'm, I'm paying way too much <laughs> money for these services. So I just thought that was yeah. a really, really interesting way of, of of looking at it. And then I think our our listeners, particularly those uh, young attorneys who are entering the the workplace, would be well to to consider that. What is the best use of your time? And and as you said, you've got to go out there. You've got to you've you've got to promote your firm. You've got to generate new clients. You've got to do a lot of stuff that they didn't teach you in, in law school. And that's one of the reasons for this podcast. So don't use your time doing things that you can get done more efficiently, more professionally, and with greater accuracy by by you know contracting with Valerie's firms or or somebody else. Don't do that yourself because you're 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 hurting your own bottom line. Right. And that's the conclusion that a lot of attorneys come to once they work with us and they realize, gosh, this really, you know, this is not tough. I mean, we give them the tools to interact with us very easily, whether it's through practice management software, because we're on all of them. We have my case, we have Rocket Matter, we have Clio, in addition to the online storage options that even if the documents are voluminous, you can upload them into those mediums and we can, we'll access them and then we do what we need to do and then we transmit them back to you. So, you know, we, we try to make it as easy as possible. And once they see that and they go through like one project with us, then, then it's sort of like the light bulb moment. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, what's the best way that a client can prepare for and take advantage of your services? Really, just to email me or call me. And if you have a particular fact pattern you want me to research or you want us to prepare something or, you know, start a, a case for you, the easiest way, the, the most productive way, I should say, to communicate with me is by email, because then that email gets shared with my support people here and whatever the project is gets delegated appropriately. Well, how do clients engage you? Are they doing it on a per case basis? Are they doing it on an hourly basis? Or how does that work? I have a retainer agreement very similar to what an attorney has in terms of defining the scope of the project or the scope of our services that we're going to provide. And I also have a confidentiality agreement, um, both of which must be signed before we commence any project with an attorney, both for your protection as well as ours. And once we're under contract with the attorney, we are on call. I, I like to use the term on call. So 
there's attorneys that use us sometimes 25, 30 hours a week when we're into the office management aspect of, you know, incoming, incoming mail, all of that stuff we're processing. There's attorneys that I don't hear from maybe for a year. And then suddenly they'll send me an email. Hey, can you, here's a fact pattern. Can you research this for me? So that's what my business model is built on, that there's no minimums, there's no maximums. Once you email me a project, I reply back to you and say, well, based on this, it's probably going to take four or five hours. Here's our rate, you know, or in the alternative, because you know your client and their budget, you, when you send over the fact uh, pattern or project request to us, you say, look, I don't want you to spend more than three hours on this. Okay, fine. No more than three hours. So it, it goes both ways. Yeah. Well, I can see where an attorney could or a firm could say, listen, I want I want to dip my toe in this water here. I want to see how this would work. Can I employ you on this one personal injury case to do uh, to get all the medical uh, documentation for me? And then, and then we'll see from there whether I use you on other PI cases or whether I can expand that to do discovery in my family law cases. Is that, sure. is that a common scenario? Absolutely. Again, because the type of work that we do in this remote environment is unique and I'm not going to say, you know, trailblazing or anything like that because it's already established, but it's unique in that not a lot of, to my knowledge, there aren't a lot of contract paralegals out there doing what I do. I know there are, but I haven't really crossed paths with many of them. So go ahead. I'm sorry. That that kind of brings me to this wrap-up question as we end our half hour here, Uh, Valerie. What do you see as the future for online, the internet world, use of paralegal consulting? I see my particular business model evolving. There's still much room for improvement, admittedly. There's things that I'm working on to improve, to make the entire process more efficient for my clients. But I see this type of business model evolving because people are telecommuting all the time. Uh, There's many, many attorneys, a lot of my clients specifically, who don't even have offices anymore. They do the office sharing or they do the Regis where you only use the office when you're meeting with a client and then the rest of the time you're working out of your basement. And that's simply a gauge of today's financial climate, I think, that the days of having the enormous overhead and all that are really falling by the wayside. Everyone's trying to save a dollar these days. And if the attorney can save it, then they can pass it on to their clients. So in that vein, I can see where our services would be more desirable because we are economical for the attorney. You don't have to pay for us. We're not on your payroll. You only use us when you need us. So if that's an hour a month or 30 hours a week, it's strictly at your call. And the processes that we use in terms of the technology allow us to be more efficient and do the work more quickly than having someone in the office. Well, I think you're 100% correct. As more and more attorneys move to a virtual environment, I myself have done so, you're going to have the need for more and more virtual assistants to work on specific tasks and specific projects. And it just seems to me that that you're 
you're way ahead of your time. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on so early in the in the life of the podcast here, because I think it's a tremendous service that more attorneys should be taking advantage of. So along those lines, Valerie, tell tell our listeners how can they get a hold of you? What's the best way to reach you? And what's your uh, website address? The best way to get in touch with me really is by email, which my email address is Valerie, and that's V-A-L-E-R-I-E at paralegalconsult.com. You can also go out on the web. We have a very nice website. It's www.paralegalconsult.com. And but of course, if neither of those work for you, you can always call me at 240-223-7293. And I'll bet they probably can hang out at any of the uh, Maryland State Bar Association conferences and probably find you hanging there around there as well. Absolutely, absolutely, definitely. Hi Valerie, it's been a pleasure having you on The Law Entrepreneur. I wanna thank you for your time and uh, we will catch up with you a little later. Terrific, thanks so much, Neil. I appreciate the opportunity. You're quite welcome. So Law Entrepreneurs, I wanted to circle back and make sure we picked up on one of the key takeaways from this interview with Valerie and the Watnick. One of the key strategies for success for a solo practitioner is outsourcing work that is not cost efficient for you to do yourself. We heard that same issue in our initial episode number one with Tom Simeone, and then again in episode two with Chris Berry, that in the beginning, as Chris put it, you have more time than money. So naturally, you tend to do everything that is needed in the firm, including secretarial support, paralegal work, and even IT integration. But as soon as you can, law entrepreneurs, it pays to outsource this work because others can do it cheaper and more efficiently than you can yourself. This frees you as the solo attorney to concentrate on the substantive legal work as well as business development. And I think that Valerie is spot on with her understanding of that need and it speaks to her company's success. The utmost compliment you could pay me is to go over to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a strong five-star review if you think the podcast and what we're trying to do here is worthwhile. Feel free to share the link to the podcast with your friends, family, and coworkers. I would be very appreciative if you did. So until next time, thanks again for listening to The Law Entrepreneur.